0: hello and welcome to another episode of the trill a podcast by the trillium my name is aiden schmandy i'm a reporter here with the trillium today i'm joined by ted shu
1: mpp for kingston and the islands and a leadership candidate for the ontario liberal party
0: so I wanted to start this interview off with some of the more newsy stuff. You know, last week you guys pulled off a fairly unexpected double by-election win in scarborough Guildwood and Kanata-Carlton. I'm wondering how you think or expect these wins might uh, affect the leadership race.
1: Well, I think, first of all, uh, the thing I would take away from the two by-election wins is the ability of the Ontario Liberal Party to attract good people, strong people. Uh, we had two great candidates that allowed for that by-election win but also so many strong and dedicated volunteers were motivated to come and and work how it will tra- uh, affect the leadership uh, race I think it will uh, increase the interest in the leadership race because I think liberals across the province are energized uh, by the two by-election wins ex- especially the one in Canada Carlton uh, which liberals haven't ever won so uh, it's a partially rural Writing and I think it puts the the Ford government on notice that uh, many writings that they hold are vulnerable.
0: Do you think there's a chance at all that maybe we're looking too much into these by-election wins? Like it's in the summer, you know, it's a by-election. I
1: think you know,
0: uh,
1: I think we should read sort of general high-level things. And so, uh, what I will say is, we did attract good candidates. And we did attract lots of motivated volunteers. I mean, that would happen whether it's a by-election or a general election. Uh, Certainly, the low turnout in a by-election can um, make unexpected things happen. But I do know that we attracted very strong candidates who had the ability to to win those um, ridings. And in 2026, I expect that we will continue Given our success in the by-elections, we will continue to attract attract strong candidates that will um, allow us to tell people, hey, if you elect a liberal government, you will have strong, competent
0: ministers. So good news for the party in at least two of the 124 ridings. Um, You know, it's obviously been a bit of a tough go over the past number of years, but you've been touring all over the province. I've seen some reports of you being to 80 or or 90 ridings. Do you know what the, the tally's at right now?
1: I actually, people, we keep asking, we haven't actually stopped because we're so busy with things, stopped to do an exact count, but it is like 80 or 90 ridings and 120, 130 uh, events that I've been to since the
0: fall. Mm -hmm. And so on the riding specifically, we've heard a ton publicly, privately about the health or kind of lack thereof, of uh, provincial liberal riding associations. So you've been to almost 100 now, how would you characterize the state of liberal PLAs and kind of what needs to be done to really rejuvenate them ahead of 2026?
1: I think when we started out, I would say that about a third of them were were writing associations were dead, a third of them were weak, and uh, only, only one third of the writing associations were in good health and strong. I think that in all writing associations now, uh, every single one, there's been activity, people are signing up. Uh, And it's an opportunity. I think that whoever wins the leadership race after December 2nd should go around to all the different ridings around the country and take these individual members uh, and uh, turn them into a community of liberals, people who want to work together, whether it's uh, to talk about policy, to talk about who should be the next candidate, to talk about what their their, uh, liberal MPP should be doing at Queen's Park. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's an exciting time, and, and all the riding associations now are getting a lot more active. So, in fact, I, would, I can think I can fairly say that there are no riding associations that don't have the potential of becoming strong, active riding associations. And this leadership race has just brought out all sorts of people.
0: Speaking of Kanata-Carlton and scarborough Guildwood, you know, kind of unexpected election wins, this is not exactly something that you're a, a stranger to. You won federally in 2011 when, you know, the party was not exactly in, in, in great shape and you won it provincially in 2022. Again, party's not, uh, not in fantastic shape. So what do you attribute your success to?
1: What I was able to do after uh, fighting a contested nomination in both times, uh, which is not easy, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but the important thing is you have to be able to unify the Liberal Party first. Uh, which I was able to do. And then you have to draw in support from people who might be leaning towards other parties. So for example, in 2011, there wasn't much of an orange wave in in Kingston and the islands. Uh, the green vote was cut in half because I worked in sustainable energy and I was seen as a voice for uh, for the transition from burning fossil fuels to a more sustainable energy economy. And a lot of Red Tories who weren't happy with Stephen, Harper, uh, Stephen Harper's conservative uh, supported me. So it's unifying not only liberals, but people who are leaning towards other parties uh, that I would
0: say is,
1: is a way to describe what I was able to do in, in 2011
0: and when you were on parliament hill from 2011 to 2015 the the federal party was you know going through a, a huge transition period not entirely dissimilar from what's happening at the provincial level now i think so i want to ask you two questions coming off of this so so first what do you think uh, the federal party did well during its kind of rebirth in that time that that you think the provincial party could copy or emulate
1: I would say that the the federal caucus worked together very, very closely. In fact, my best memory of being uh, a federal MP is how close the caucus uh, members were to each other. We backed each other up. Uh, we substituted in committee. We attended events uh, in writing associations. We traveled. Uh, we did a lot of things together together. And, and we stuck together. And, and that's my my best memory. And I think that the Provincial Liberal Caucus is well on the way to doing that. And we should, we should keep at it. And whoever the next leader is should be working very, very closely with caucus. Um, because there's a lot of resources there in caucus. And also because we don't have official party status. So there is no budget for a leader's office uh, that an official party would have. So the leader... Is not going to have a lot of resources, and will have to work very closely and make the best uses of uh, best use of caucus resources.
0: You really perked up when you mentioned uh, working closely with your caucus mates on the uh, on Parliament Hill. Do you have any other like stories, any fun times traveling, or anything that you want to share?
1: Well, I just remember uh, things like I was uh, we were driving in in Western Canada. I was Scott Bryson and I were sent somewhere. I forget which city, whether it was Saskatoon or Calgary. Uh, We drove in a car, we had a nice long talk. But I also uh, remember that uh, substituting committee, I was uh, Erwin Cotler had to go to some conference. And uh, this was like a few weeks after I was elected, I had to substitute for him in justice committee. And we sat for must have been two hours after the House of Commons adjourned in our seats. In, in the chamber, and he gave me a two-hour lecture on, uh, it was on mass trials of gangs. Anyways, you know, people pay thousands of dollars of tuition to get uh, lectures from Urban Kotler, and here I was, a one-on-one with him, uh, getting a lecture on the finer points of law in that area. <laughs> and so I was taken under the wing of many, many former ministers, and I got a lot of training from foreign, former ministers who had a lot of time on their hands and who really believed in uh, helping me uh, learn everything that I needed to, to learn.
0: I mean, you're a physicist. Did you have to teach anyone you know, uh, uh, thermodynamics or you know, <laughs> Newton's laws of motions or anything like that? Not,
1: not so much in politics, but I would say that uh, I was the science and technology critic when I was in the House of Commons. And many, many issues uh, from climate change to natural resources and, and uh, health policy uh, touch on science and technology, so I was able to use my science background and be part of uh, to make the team stronger uh, and uh, it's It's not about science and technology telling you the answer to everything, but it's just something that's on tap that that can make you stronger than you otherwise would
0: be. And so the, the second question that I wanted to ask off of that kind of earlier, pretty long preamble was, uh, was there anything that, you know, the federal brothers and sisters did during that time that you think should be avoided this time around?
1: Um, what should, now I'm going to think about, have to think about this. Uh, I would say, let's see. That's a hard question to answer. So I I, I guess I would say the, the most unfortunate thing out of that uh, time was, uh, and this included the lead up to the 2015 election, uh, internally inside the caucus, we were talking about electoral reform. And uh, the now Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, made his promise that 2015 would be the last election um, uh, run under the first past the post system. And this didn't come out of the blue. We were talking a lot about uh, what our position should be on electoral reform uh, in the caucus. And I I think the unfortunate thing is that promise uh, was not kept. And it probably should have been articulated a little
0: better (laughs) during that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these last few questions talking about uh, the the party being, the provincial party being reborn, the federal party uh, being reborn, 2018, 2022, obviously were not fantastic uh, elections for you guys. Uh, So do you think 2026 is kind of a make or break existential election for the liberal party? Do you risk being left behind? I, I do
1: think so. Like, I think that if the Liberal Party had the same result, seven or eight or nine seats uh, in 2026, uh, a lot of people will give up hope. I think that we are already uh, much of the uh, expertise in running a government that is connected to the Liberal Party is already dispersed. I was once asked, uh, if you're the premier in 2026, if you're elected premier, what are you going to do in the first 100 days? And uh, what are your priorities? And, and I said, you know, my, I think my priority, because we've been out of power for so long, we haven't been an official party, we haven't had staff uh, connected to the caucus because of the lack of funds from not being an official party. My priority during that 100 days is to spend a lot of time finding the best people to hire, to put together uh, a government. Because you, there's a lot of people that you have to hire and they're not nearby because we've been out of power for so long. We're going to have to search, uh, search out the best people. And and a lot of people are, a lot of the best people are young and haven't ever uh, worked in, at Queens Park uh, in the provincial government yet. So uh, that just requires extra work. So I would, I think we need to spend a lot of time uh, finding the best people. I know they're out there because a lot of talented people are attracted to the liberal party uh, but if we don't win, uh, if if we don't get a lot more seats, if we don't get official party status in twenty twenty six, the the talent that is attracted to the Liberal Party will be even more dispersed. And so
0: it is it is make or break twenty twenty six. Just a quick one: if you were premier in twenty twenty six, would you want to change the rules around official party status, given what what you've been through?
1: I would like to change the rules around official party status so that any party that gets 10% of the vote, not a number of seats, but 10% of the vote uh, gets official party Mm. status. Mm. I think it's, I think that's a fairer way of determining official party status. Mm.
0: So you stepped away from federal politics in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, to spend more time with your family. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So, Given that you jumped back into electoral politics in 2022 uh, and are now, you know, taking a crack at running for liberal leader, is it, is it fair to say you've gotten sick of spending time with your family? No, it's not. Um, I, when I, uh, I, I wanted, a lot of me run it, a lot, a big part
1: of me wanted to run again in 2015, but it wasn't right for the family. Uh, and now my kids are grown up. My older daughter is uh, left home for school and my younger daughter is pretty independent. Uh, my wife is uh, spending a lot of time helping with the leadership campaign, uh, but it is important to to spend time with the family. Uh, I just have the ability to uh, be an MPP and run for leader because my kids are grown up. Be- and also I would say because uh, my brother is uh, spending a lot of time in Kingston taking care of uh, my aunt who's in long-term care and also my parents who are Around ninety uh, they 're still independent, but they need help now and then, so um, the ability of family to help out is still very important, and uh, spending time with family is uh, still a big part of my life.
0: Can you talk a little bit about like like you just said that you were interested in running again federally in two thousand and fifteen, and obviously now you are uh, you're an MPP you're running provincially. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the considerations around running federally, running provincially, maybe the things that you deal with? at the provincial level versus the federal level that, that attracted you more?
1: I wouldn't say that I'm more attracted to federal or provincial politics. What I'm attracted to doing is working on the really hard problems that confront us. So cost of living and housing, uh, our healthcare system, uh, climate change, uh, mental health and addictions, the state of our economy. All I would say that all of our really hard problems are multi-jurisdictional. All of our really hard problems... Uh, need to be addressed at the federal, provincial, municipal, and uh, Indigenous governance levels. So, uh, for me, it's not a particular level of government that I'm looking for. I, I like my daughter says, <laughs> me and my friends, Dad, we just want somebody to do something. <laughs> and so, being in a position to to do something, to spend some political capital to To really uh, make a dent in in one of the big problems that's facing uh, society is is what I want to do. Mm-hmm.
0: And so when you were thinking about running for leader, y- you made noise pretty early about about wanting to jump into the race and you were one of the first to jump into the race. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how and when you decided that, yes, this is something that I want to do and maybe if, if a certain someone pushed you over the edge or a certain something.
1: Well, I I to be fair, I... The thought crossed my mind on election night when uh, the results came out and Stephen Del Duca resigned. Because I realized that I had the most experience of any um, member of, uh, of the Liberal Party in being a caucus member in the third party in the legislature. Uh, in, so I spent four and a half years in that position as a federal MP in the third place caucus, uh, third, third party in the House of Commons, and then a year provincially. So that's five and a half years total. Uh, in fact, it's even more than the interim leader John Fraser, <laughs> because he spent four years in that position provincially. So, I th- thought, look, I'm, I have a lot of experience in this uh, position that the party's in now. I'm a sitting member of the Ontario legislature. Uh, I should be thinking seriously about potentially running and, and that kind of thought kind of languished until, uh, really until August when a a person in uh, who's been in the party for a while approached me and said, Hey, Ted, have you thought of running? Um, because uh, I, I knew that running for leader would be a big, big task that I couldn't do not knowing how things worked and and what you need to do to, to, um, to put together a campaign and not having connections to the, to the rest of the party. Um, and so having somebody come forward and say, Hey, I'll help. I'll tell you what to do. I'll introduce you to people. I'll, uh, open some doors. Uh, that was, that was a big thing. And so that happened around August. And then we started, um, traveling and I think it's October that we started traveling.
0: Mm. So you were interviewed for a recent Toronto Starcom, I believe uh, Bob Hepburn wrote it, and it called you, and I think this is a direct quote, the most intriguing contestant, but one that's relatively unknown. And um, uh, I'm shamefully and honestly tempted to use a kind of similar adjective in, the, in this episode description, but I, I wanted to ask you first if you think that you know your candidacy, candidacy warrants that descriptor.
1: I think it is fair to say that I am relatively unknown. Uh, I spent in in the liberal party. So these are the, the liberals and liberal leaning people who are um, going to vote in this leadership race. I spent a lot of years working outside of politics. Um, so I spent, I worked almost a decade in, in science research. I worked almost a decade in, uh, in uh, finance and, and managing a business line and, and several years, uh, half a decade in running a sustainable energy association. Uh, so because I don't have a long history in the, in the liberal party, I was lacking connections and lacking, uh, lacking name recognition. So yeah, it's, I think it's fair. I think the intriguing part is fair because I think I'm pretty different uh, from the other other candidates because um I have a lot of experience outside of politics. I also have a very relevant experience in politics, having spent all those years in a third-party caucus. And I think that I approach politics differently uh, in a way that's different from what people are used to. Do you want to
0: expand on that uh, elevator pitch a bit?
1: Well, uh, in terms of approaching politics differently, I would say that it's I want to rebuild trust in the Liberal Party. I don't think that having a public profile and uh, um, getting votes by being popular is, or by being well-known is is the way to um, elect more liberals. I, I really feel that there's a big task involved in earning the trust of voters because I think that's needed to get voters to want to get out to vote and to want to get out to vote for liberals because I feel that they need some assurances that they can trust the liberals to take their problems seriously. Um, So I think that there are little things that you can do. Like when we, when I criticize the Ford government, I, I don't like to exaggerate. I like to be fair, but firm so that when I do criticize uh, the other parties, that people believe me, that people trust in what I'm saying. I believe that we should have uh, some bold policies that risk losing a couple of votes, but show people that we're serious about the problems that we're facing, about cost of living and housing. Um, I think that I should be, as a leader, traveling around the province and meeting people in person uh, in order to earn trust. Oh, and and let me just finish the thought about the bold <laughs> policies. I think that we have to be... You know, talk is cheap, and but if we say things say this is what we believe is the what's needed and we're willing to lose a couple of votes when we say that people will trust us more mm-hmm. So will believe because talk is cheap but if we're willing to a few vote, lose a few a small number of votes talk is not cheap and mm-hmm. people will believe us. But I, I also think that we, should, we need to be meeting people face to face to earn trust. I think the human brain is wired to to use facial facial expression, voice intonation, body language to decide whether to trust somebody or not. But I also think that in this time when we have uh, the, uh, AI is suddenly becoming uh, uh, very prominent in the news. So there's chat GPT, AI is writing stuff, there's fake videos. People are going to believe less and less what they see or read on the screen. Uh, and it will be even more important to go out and meet people face to face. Um, I also think we should be talking about uh, smaller matters and getting people to trust us on smaller matters so that people will trust us on on the big things. So, for example, uh, a lot of people are worried about uh, rising automobile thefts in certain parts of the province. so so we have we should say something about that, which, Unfortunately, the liberal caucus didn't didn't do that. You know, we're small; we don't get to cover all the issues. <laughs> but I think you need if, if people trust you in the smaller things, they will trust you with the bigger things, like managing the economy, housing, fixing our healthcare system, and climate change. Mm. Uh, and then finally, I would say, uh, if we make a mistake, and everybody's going to make mistakes, I'm going to make mistakes. My staff is going to make mistakes. It's important to apologize and and move on, so that we don't try to spend a lot of time explaining things. And as you're doing that, the trust is eroding. So I think we need to do all of those things to, to build trust. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's the
0: way that I would
1: like to do politics differently.
0: Mm. So in that last, last answer, you talked about bold policies and I'd like to ask you a couple of policy questions now. Um, so, so far in this leadership race, it's mostly been uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and, and Bonnie Crombie kind of going at one another. But uh, you've recently decided to, I guess, maybe uh, throw some elbows. uh, um, So you recently tweeted that you are willing to lock horns with Erskine Smith over his pitch to reintroduce electric vehicle purchase incentives. Can you explain that uh, debate and the disagreement a little bit?
1: Yeah, so we as a province and from our tax bills are going to be subsidizing the production of batteries and electric vehicles in Ontario. And the goal of that is to get the jobs. In Ontario, and also to get the opportunity to um, have all the jobs in the, the value chain, all the products that go into the, the um, automobiles. And so we're subsidizing the production of automobiles a lot on the factory floor. And my point to Nate Erskine-Smith was, I, I don't think we need to subsidize uh, yet again the uh, automobiles when they're on the showroom floor. Because there are other things we can do. Like we could we could put more money into charging stations, which people worry a lot about when they think about, should I buy an electric vehicle or not? We could put more money into storage, which makes, you know, solar and wind energy are really cheap now, but they're intermittent. So the big barrier to how much solar and wind energy we can use is how much storage there is. Um, I know that we are... Sp- and we will be spending a lot of money on every electric vehicle that's produced. We'll be subsidizing it. So, so why subsidize it a second time when there are other things that we need to 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 build up to fight climate change?
0: So, another energy related question for you here. Uh, you said last week that you are willing to revisit the moratorium on offshore wind in the province. You know this was a rather hot issue in Kingston. Why stick your neck out on this?
1: Well, it's been. Uh, first of all, it's been 15 years or so. It's, technology has changed. There are a lot of uh, places around the world have started to develop offshore uh, wind projects. So why not see if offshore wind can compete with wind and other uh, uh, onshore wind? Uh, whichever one can provide wind the cheapest uh, should be allowed to, to produce wind and wind energy. Uh, and uh, it's it's just a lot of time has passed. The technology has changed um, a lot There's a lot of experience around the world in building um, uh, wind turbine wind farms on water. Uh, and so why not open it up as a possibility? Hmm. It's a climate crisis <laughs> after all so why why are you shutting out an option if it's a
0: crisis? So you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I want to wrap. With some kind of personal frivolous questions here, so you're a you're a physicist. You're you've got international finance experience. Uh, is there anything that uh, you suck at that you actually would like to be good at? I would like to be better at
1: telling jokes.
0: <laughs>
1: wouldn't I'm we, not all? Very wouldn't good we, at we all? Telling wouldn't jokes? we all? I'm not. I, I need to be better at telling story and telling telling stories and telling jokes. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's. I really admire the people who are. Who are good at that, and uh, so I listen to them really carefully, but I don't seem to be able to imitate them very easily. Got to hit some open mics uh, across the province while you're while you're touring for the leadership. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I could. Uh, maybe that's not the best way to do training when you're a politician. Uh, but actually, I do. I do like. I, I do think that going to like stand-up comedy is a good way of getting to know the mood of people like what people are willing to tell jokes about and laugh at is a good idea it gives you an idea of what is bothering them in life and what is frustrating them in life because people like to joke about those things yeah yeah
0: well ted like i said i've been very generous with your time so i think uh, i think now's a good place of any to wrap so thanks again for joining us listeners tune in again next week for ted